Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes part of the area that he grew up in in Italy that just so happens to be one of the blue zones. And so he was trying to figure out, you know, like what's this common denominator between all these areas. And of course, sleeping patterns, social behaviors, lifestyle in general, you know, fitness level, all of those things play a role. But when you look at diet, and of course that was his main um, objective is looking at diet. Uh, he found that they all tend to eat plants. They incorporate some sort of lean protein, maybe fish, and it does tend to be more like this Mediterranean diet lifestyle. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life podcast. This is your host, Krista Bigler, private practice integrative nutritionist, helping people across the U.S. reverse digestive issues, eczema, and autoimmunity via phone and video consult. To learn more, visit lessstressednutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Today on The Less Stressed Life, we have Victoria Hahn. So Victoria is really my expert on intermittent fasting because in the past, she worked in Dr. Walter Longo's lab. So you might not know who that is, but he is sort of the premier researcher for intermittent fasting in the United States. She can correct me later if I'm wrong. That's how I view it. And he wrote the book, The Longevity Diet. So Victoria is the dietitian, used to work in that lab, and now really works with kind of an adjunct um, to Longo's research, which she can tell us about later. But she really a clinical dietitian, has a background in nutrition research, um, specialist, uh, specializes in master's in nutrition, health span, and longevity. So when we're thinking about intermittent fasting, we're thinking about it longevity, and really has a passion for research and evidence-based practice. So today, she's going to enlighten us all about intermittent fasting, and we're so happy to have her. Thanks for joining us, Victoria. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here, and of course, talking about um, what I love, which is fasting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to hate like I, this used to be such a turnoff for me because I think like, who doesn't want to eat? I mean, I love eating. Oh, and yeah. It's my favorite thing. So I kind of rephrased intermittent fasting or fasting to gut rest uh, because I thought, well, that kind of resonated with me a little bit more like give those guts a break. Um, and I used to be the girl who was always packing a bunch of granola bars everywhere, definitely suboptimal oh, blood yeah. sugar. <laughs> and intermittent fasting can really be kind of an interesting tool to overcome some of those kind of kind of blood sugary things. And so we're going to talk about a lot about it. But it's it's a very trendy topic right now that could easily get misconstrued. And I'm sure if people have been around the podcast um, for a while, they may have heard me mention this story. I just love this cute story I had with this guy one time where um, he said, Krista, I was intermittent fasting today and I didn't have lunch. And I said, honey, that is skipping lunch, not intermittent fasting. There is a huge difference. Exactly. So we got to get things <laughs> kind of, there is some really like nuance things, but I think a story is kind of funny. So I'm going to let you break it down for us. Tell us what is intermittent fasting and can you tell us about some of the types? Yeah, definitely. So the way that I define intermittent fasting is really just fasting, in essence, not done all the time, which ends up kind of being a whole bunch of different types of fasts. And when you want to separate it out, like if you think umbrella term fasting, and if you think about it in terms of duration of time, either not like, you know, all the time or not all the time, then it's very easy to see that most of us practice some form of not all the time fasting. Mm-hmm. However, if you wanted to make it more specific, um, we do actually have some amount of classification in regards to intermittent fasting, periodic and or prolonged fasting, and then, of course, time-restricted eating, which I would say is probably the most popular one that I've heard of more recently. So to just define um, a few of those ones, 
IF or intermittent fasting can be defined as a complete and or partial 24-hour restriction that's done at least one or even more times a week. Normally, it's no longer than three days of the week, and usually those days are not contiguous, so they're not, you know, one right after another. Now, TRE, which is, like I said, super popular right now, it means exactly what it says it mean, means, which is time-restricted eating. So it's when you restrict eating to a certain window of time. Normally, this is no more than 3 to 12 hours per day where you're only eating during those um, hours. So I think one of the more interesting ones that I've heard of, which I don't personally practice this, but it's the one meal a day. So they fast for 20 hours a day and then will eat for only four, which is very intense in my personal opinion. And I don't really, um, I would not try to do that type of fast. Mm -hmm. But some of the more interesting kinds of fastings um, really take place with these longer versions of fast. So periodic fasting uh, or prolonged fasting, you know, whichever one you'd like to use, we can acronym it by saying PF. And in essence, that's really defined as three to seven days that are continuous. So one right after another of fasting. And usually that's per month. So it's not to be done for a very long period of time. But the duration of that fast is longer. And that has a lot to do with what it ultimately can do. Okay, got it. So to recap, we've got TRE or time-restricted eating, which um, is really often, some people are doing one meal a day, which is a bit restrictive because it's 20-hour fast, four-hour eating window. So it's like the kitchen is Mm -hmm. open four hours, closed the other 20 hours. But it doesn't have to be quite like that. Like, what are some other common ones? Yeah, so some of the more common ones um, would be like the 16-8, so Mm -hmm. fasting for 16 hours, eating for eight, or even the 12-12, of course, fasting for 12 hours and eating for 12 hours. Which isn't really very weird because honestly, (laughs) um, fasting overnight for 12 hours is maybe a good practice to just stop us from like mindlessly snacking all the time. So that's something that's not really too crazy or odd. And if you can't make it that far and you don't have a medical condition, then where you you know, which is another topic, um, then that's not too crazy at all. So it's kind of like there's, there's so many versions and some of them aren't really that different Mm -hmm. from what's normal. Our gut needs a break to do its work. Right. So exactly. So, um, so which one is your favorite? You said more so, you know, in my personal opinion, and it's a little biased because of course I do work with um, a company where we kind of only focus in on this type of fast, but I do know a lot about it. And in my personal opinion, if you're looking for the true benefits of fasting, which I believe tend to be these stress resistance responses, so things like cellular cleanup and um, repair, regeneration, rejuvenation, things within that um, realm, then I'm really thinking of periodic and or prolonged fasting. So really fasting for days at a time. And it, like I said, it has everything to do with the amount of time that you're actually in that fast. However, I will also argue that TRE, even though it, it does seem pretty straightforward, I mean, I think most of us practice some form of um, TRE, which is why I was saying most of us practice fasting, whether we know it or not. Um, it does play a role and it likely does serve an actual purpose just beyond, of course, restricting our eating behavior. There is a natural biological rationale to try to have periods of eating. And then, of course, periods of rest, just as you were saying, uh, GI rest, it is super important. And although we haven't defined that out too perfectly, it is to say that it's something that we should be cognizant of, especially if we can try to control it and we're not too extreme about it. Mm-hmm. So on that note, I feel like there's a lot of technical terms here, but in my head, I if I had to summarize this really quickly, I feel like intermittent fasting is a period of eating sometimes and not eating other times, and it can either mm-hmm. be prolonged or you know daily. Uh, it's best if it's not daily in a row too much. Um, it's something that you cycle in and out and. So you can correct me if you think anything different than that. That's kind of how those are some of the things yeah. I think of. But with intermittent fasting, also you had you when you gave the proper definition, you said complete or partial limited food. I think this is kind of interesting because kind of with the company you work with, you get a prolonged fast, but you're still eating. So it's not like you're not eating yeah. for those times. So can you explain that a little bit? Because that's kind of interesting and unique. And then maybe we'll talk about some other benefits. But that's kind of that yeah. would be a misconception, I think, for a lot of people. That's like kind of the weird, oh, the weird definitely, thing. definitely. I mean, aside from other things, um, I would I would definitely argue that one of the biggest misconceptions is that fasting is exactly what we think of it when we look at the dictionary, which is the absence of food or drink, maybe. It's for religious observation, 
But it's really not just that. It has so much more to do with a biological process. And whenever I think of the word fasting or just fasting as a whole, I don't think of that common definition. I tend to think of that biological definition, which is to say it's a reprogramming, if you will, of your physiology. So you're triggering a very specific type of response that which we can categorize as fasting. And I can get um, into more technical surrounding that. But in essence, when you start to think of it as a biological process, I mean, we can manipulate many biological processes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Then you can start to think of it as something that maybe something initiates it. And that something tends to be what we would call the nutrient-sensing pathway. So there's very specific genes that interplay with this nutrient-sensing pathway that you can actually try to target. And with that being said, technically have a similar or I suppose mimic that same response that you would get with the omission of food, but of course you're still introducing some amount of nutrients. So it has a lot to do with the amount that you're providing and of course um, what types of mechanisms we're thinking of at that point in time. But really just trying to shift that framework from, oh well fasting is completely not eating anything. It's so much more than just that. It's actually a physiologic process that can be controlled by very specific amounts of macro and of course micronutrients. Mm -hmm, Totally. Okay. So let's do, I'm, you know, I'm convinced by Mm -hmm. what the benefits are. So let's talk about benefits of fasting, first of all, and then maybe the contraindications. So where do we see the intermittent fasting? Like what are the main benefits? And then what are some of the other things that we've seen as benefits as well? Yeah, um, so kind of, I want to say run-of-the-mill benefits of most types of fast, although it is very specific and it depends on the kind of fast, but just generally speaking, if you look at any of the articles that are being published today, more often than not, they're showing that these fasting patterns are related to a maintenance of healthy levels of a multitude of metabolic markers, so things like glucose, triglycerides, blood pressure, um, especially in regards to the FMD, that's something that we did observe in clinical trial. But also, of course, some amount of weight loss, what I will argue against that um, is that technically fasting should not be used as a standalone weight loss therapy, and that's a huge misconception to try to, you know, circle back to that other question. It is to say that fasting can be an ancillary to support an overall weight loss program, but what we're seeing, especially in regards to the 5-2 diet, which is one form of fasting, so it's five days of normal calorie intake and two days of fasting, sometimes they're together, sometimes they're separate, it just depends on the individual and what protocols they're following, but what we've seen is that that form of fasting, when you compare it to just continuous calorie restriction of the same duration of time, there's no significant difference in between the two. So at that point in time, it just depends on really what you want. But we do see, of course, weight loss as being an additional benefit. But when I start to think about the more interesting benefits associated with fasting, it does depend on the duration of the fast in order to trigger these processes. So when I think of the SMD or a prolonged slash periodic fast, I really look at those types of fasts helping to support the body's natural functions to one, of course, enter into a protective and stress resistance mode, but also two, remove damaged cells and tissues. And then the last thing, which is probably the most magical part of this, is to promote self-repair through cellular regeneration and rejuvenation. So it has a lot to do with what you were kind of saying a little bit earlier, that GI rest, it's almost like a body-wide, system-wide rest. Yeah. So let's, is there like a good analogy for cellular repair? Is it kind of like garbage cleanup you or know, disease? Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So normally whenever I describe that, um, I'll try to say that, you know, so your cells, you know, they, you could think of it like a house and let's just say that there's like a person in this house that could be an organelle, whatever you want it to be. So your cells over time, you know, as with your house, you have to do some spring cleaning. You may accrue some, you know, trash everywhere, depending on how clean you are. And unfortunately, this is just a part of your cells. They accrue a lot of trash. So there's just trash all around. And if you don't give it proper time to actually clean up, then it's just going to keep all that trash around it. Now, with fasting, you're actually giving it an opportunity you're literally permitting it, hey, you know what, today is spring cleaning day, so you can start taking out all that trash. And so that's exactly what it's going to do. We call that process autophagy. It's a form of cellular cleanup. And not only just that, it even goes like the extra mile. So it's not just taking out that trash, but you're recycling it. So you're reutilizing those little trash particles and trying to repurpose them into something more functional and better while you are in that stressful state, which would be fasting. So that's 
kind of the analogy for um, that cellular cleanup phase is really you're just taking out the garbage, which normally you wouldn't be doing if you're just eating all the time. It's a process that really occurs when you fast. Mm -hmm. So the technical word is autophagy. And is there, the body is utilizing autophagy otherwise, but fasting makes it much more efficient and creates it more frequently. Is that correct or incorrect? It is to say that other things can upregulate or stimulate that process. Um, But one thing that we know definitely does is fasting. And the reason for that is because when you're fasting, you don't have enough nutrients that are coming in and so your body's kind of like in an, ah, oh my gosh, like I need to start figuring things out. Like I've, my bank is empty. Like I'm losing all my money sort of issue. And so what it's going to do is it's going to start to sell off things, if you will, or we can try to use the trash analogy again. So let's say that, you know, it's, it's trying to clean up things and it's in a stressful environment, then what it'll do while it's in need of new nutrients or things to utilize during that stressor, it'll utilize what it has available, which would be less functional components of either the cell or other misfolded proteins. And so fasting is one way to be able to trigger that process, although other stressors can also trigger autophagy, but those are, of course, a little more deleterious and serious in nature. Mm-hmm. Okay, so actually, this reminds me, because we're thinking about like mm-hmm. the body saying, Oh, I need to clean up and unload junk because I can't take everything. Um, it makes mm-hmm. me think about, let's talk about some of the contraindications actually for fasting and where it's not indicated. And then we'll go back to I'll rapid fire you on other benefits and how fasting affects some things. So I always say oh, yeah. like, there's some things I want people to never forget about fasting. You might be missing, you might be skipping a meal, but I think it's important to not skip nutrients um, or to try to be especially nutrient dense when you are eating or to consider that piece. And I think that's some maybe possibly a place where people could kind of fall into a problem because are people's diets mm-hmm. completely nutrient dense as they should be otherwise, like unless, unless they're very cognizant about it. So, I mean, to me, that's a contraindication, but what do you see as contraindications? And there's others as well, of course, but what do you see as contraindications or reasons or thoughts on why someone shouldn't fast or special considerations that, hey, let's not forget this piece? Yeah, no, definitely. I know that for our fasting mimicking diet, we do have considerations and of course safety precautions so I can go over some of those because it would still be in line with intermittent fasting patterns as a whole so those that are kind of in this region where I would say you're in a pro-growth mode so let's say you're a pediatric individual or you're pregnant or you're lactating then this would not be a time for you to fast you you need to grow in fasting you can think of it as of course stress resistance but you could also think of it as anti-growth technically. So if you're fasting, you're not going to be growing. You're going to try to, you know, utilize what you have available. And although that's an, a gross oversimplification, it's still kind of true. So for anyone who's in this growth phase, we wouldn't want you to fast. It's something that, you know, you can wait for later on when you're more stable and when it's a little more appropriate. In addition to that, um, individuals who have an active infection or have a fever, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, any of those things, you're already in a stressor. You don't need to add more stress to your life. This is not a time to be fasting. You got to get better and, you know, support your immune system. And with that being said, of course, anyone who is malnourished, definitely not a time to be fasting. You got to figure out why you're malnourished and, of course, get to a more nourished state. And I know you're familiar with this, Krista, but in case your listeners are not, you can be of a multitude of BMI ranges all the way from, you know, morbidly obese to, you know, very malnourished and, of course, malnourished as a whole because micronutrients are so important. So it is to say if you know that you are or if you as a clinician, you know, you see your patient is, this is not a time for fasting. And then, of course, if someone is experiencing um, some sort of immunosuppressor-suppressing type issue, so... If someone already doesn't have a fully functioning immune system, then it's not a time for them to be fasting. Now, I can also get into some medical conditions where it would be of a risk to fast, but I'll I'll hold off on that as there are special considerations if someone does have a medical uh, indication, whether or not they should be fasting or what kind of fast um, would be, I suppose, most deleterious for them. 
Okay. Um, I want to tag on a couple of things from what you said. So I'll summarize as well. Yeah. So anyone in the growth phase, so we mm-hmm. think about anyone growing, children, pregnant women, anyone else gr- trying to grow, not sure who else fits into that. Those are the first two people that popped into my head. Anyone with fe- infections, yeah. right? Because those infections are actually going to mm-hmm. um, damage, they're going to work on making people nutrient replete as well and malnourishment i think Mm -hmm. there's a broad spectrum of what that can mean sometimes and it might be a different term i might use a different term than what someone else might so when we think about malnourishment in a hospital or clinical setting look at certain lab markers we say oh yeah this person's just not really nourished but i think in general there are people out there walking around with like a lot of nutrient deficiencies and i just have a bias Mm -hmm. right because i look at that um so i think in general it's just a matter of okay so if i started you know if i'm coming from a place of like crappy diet maybe that should be my first stop before i try to experiment with fasting a little bit um depending on how you approach it it's just a possibility i'm just throwing that in there uh just food for thought here (laughs) so um let's talk about some of those medical conditions um because actually this is the piece where we don't have to get into real depth but you know Mm -hmm. you've got people with blood sugar imbalances or more diagnosed blood sugar issues like diabetes and some other things. And there are programs out there that work on fasting in relationship to glucose or diabetes levels. So can you speak to anything about that? Like, do we, how do we see that those improves? Like, I, I'm sure we always want someone to be monitoring, but the tricky thing is how does someone find someone who can help them monitor that? That's the tricky thing that we may not be able to answer today, but that is kind of the, the challenging piece with something that's kind of newer in science years, um, or at least in medicine, yeah. like how it's being applied in medicine years, it feels like your practitioner may not really know a lot about this. So what do you say to those people? So as far as trying to find resources for implementation of fasting, if you are someone with a medical condition, no matter what type of medical condition it is, or if you are on medications, then it is always best practices to find a clinician that can supervise you while you go on a fast, mainly because, of course, a fast does it, it can alter your physiology. And with that being said, that can affect not only your medications, but also your medical diagnosis and how that pathophysiology works. So as a whole, it's always best to try to find a practitioner. Now, if you don't have a practitioner, more often than not, there are resources available out there. I would say that most clinicians who function as either an integrative and or functional medicine practitioner Um, They tend to be some of the individuals that actually adopt fasting in their practices, and there's a wide variety of resources. I know that there's a whole group um, with the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics where they actually have a little find a practitioner portal. Mm -hmm. Um, So they may be of help, and those are all registered dietitians um, who would really be kind of the expertise that you'd want to go for. But in addition to that, um, the company that I work for, Alnutra, we do also can provide you with information in regards to clinicians that practice at least the type of fast that we have, which would be the fasting mimicking diet and or prolonged slash periodic fasting. And um, we can give you like a little bit of a recommendation as far as some local practitioners. We'd, of course, um, give you several names and we actively can provide you with some information surrounding fasting and if it's appropriate for you or not. Although we don't diagnose, um, (laughs) we're doing that here. Um, And we can't necessarily talk to you too intensely about your medical condition if you are calling about that, but at least we can try to point you in the right direction. Sure. Yep. And we'll talk about kind of Eldnutra and what prolonged fasting is here in a little bit. Um, So... You know, medical conditions, contraindications, we kind of went over that. Um, I think another one that is not, it's not that, I feel, I feel like you're so good at like the, the lab, the warnings on the box, like you're very appropriate warnings on the box. But for me, I'm like, mm-hmm. if someone has like a bad food relationship, maybe fasting is not a good fit for them because there could be some Oh, definitely. Things. No, that, that is something that I should have totally mentioned. If someone has a history of an eating disorder, Definitely so. You And for sure, you're going to want to um, speak with your clinician prior to doing fasting at all. Mm-hmm, totally. Okay, so we talked about yeah. intermittent fasting and it's, imp- you know, how we're seeing benefits in the research around metabolic markers, meaning triglycerides, cholesterol markers, blood sugar markers, etc. And sometimes weight loss, even though that shouldn't be used as the standalone weight loss um, piece. Uh, but I do have some like rapid fire questions. So 
Mm-hmm. There are whole programs that are focusing on weight loss with intermittent fasting. Let's just talk about whether uh, I have I have like a whole pile of questions here. So, is intermittent fasting more effective for weight loss if you work out fasting? So, like people talk. I worked for a program for a while where there was a big intermittent mm-hmm. fasting piece of it, and people would say, "Oh, can I work out when I fast?" Like I think it's how you feel. Do you have an opinion about this, or do you know the science on this? So kind of a little bit of both. Um, I definitely have an opinion, although I want to stick with facts. Um, as far as what we know, it's honestly super hard to say. Um, exercise physiology is a whole arm of research in its own right, and I would argue that we need more in order to figure out not only what type of exercise are you doing, but what duration, what intensity, who are you, all of these things play a role in how fasting is going to interact with, of course, your exercise and ultimately ultimately the amount of weight that you're going to lose. Now, in regards to just thinking about it from a medical perspective um, and in the interim of having that type of information, honestly, it's risky to exercise if you are fasted, mainly because that can help to stimulate, of course, things like dizziness, possible fainting, and ultimately a workout-related injury. So with fasting physiology, you're naturally going to be in a a state where you don't have enough nutrients to technically fuel the workout that you're going to do. Now, of course, if your ultimate goal is weight loss, yes, that's going to help stimulate some amount of fatty acid breakdown because that's what you're going to partially, you're going to use other things as well, but that's partially what you're going to use to fuel your workout out depending on what kind you're doing. Mm-hmm. However, there's a lot of risk associated with that. And even when you consider the fact that with working out technically that's going although initially in line with fasting, ultimately could be against how fasting truly works. So really thinking about the benefits of fasting. So it could be counterproductive and even lead to some lean body mass loss, depending on what you do after the workout. So there's a lot of gray area in regards to fasting and um, exercise. And what I'd say is right now, we don't have a lot of information surrounding that. um, And it can be very risky. So I wouldn't recommend doing that. Okay. So on that same kind of note, does are we concerned that intermittent fasting in general causes muscle loss? Um, I feel like this is also gray because it depends on how long you do it, et cetera. So what do we know about that? Yeah. <laughs> so definitely still gray. Um, but what I can say is that there have been a few studies out there to show that Unfortunately, again, it depends on what kind of fast you're doing, but these shorter term fasts where they're like a day or two and then you kick yourself out of it real quickly, um, those have been linked to lean body mass loss. And part of the hypothesis as to why this is occurring is because we know that when you start to fast, at least pure water fast, um, you're going to, of course, start to degrade your glycogen reserves. But another process that happens early on in a fast is amino acid degradation. And the main reason for any of these processes is to make sure that your glucose is being maintained at a homeostatic level as if it plummets, it's not compatible with life. And so it is to say early on in a fast, there's nothing to really curtail that amino acid degradation. And if you were to kind of go in and out of a fast, it's possible that some of that amino acid may be lost. And so it's possible that that's the translation of that lean body mass loss that some of these studies are reporting. Something to also note, though, um, you know, nicely and a little uh, a little bit something that we hadn't necessarily considered, although we're thankful for, when we did our clinical trial with the FMD, so the fasting mimicking diet, Um, We did, of course, measure weight loss, and I can get to that at a later point, but one thing to note is that in relationship to weight, we did not observe any lean body mass loss, and of course, with the FMD, at least the one that we were utilizing in that clinical trial, um, that was of five days, five consecutive days of a fast, in essence. Well, you've mentioned the FMD a couple times, so I think it's a good time for us to define it so people aren't saying, what are they talking about? (laughs) Let me rewind, (laughs) try to find that part. So let's talk about what is a fasting mimicking diet? It's like you get the benefits of fasting, but you get to eat. So tell me what the catch is here. Yeah, so it, it pretty much is that. It's literally exactly what the name says it is. It's a diet that mimics fasting. So as far as the kinds that we have out, we only have one, um, and we did have a clinical trial to show its efficacy. But in essence, it's five consecutive days worth of food. So you actually get food with this fast, and that food is in such a specific macronutrient as well as caloric range that which 
helps to circumvent the activation of the nutrient sensing pathways I was mentioning a little earlier, so that ultimately you can promote and mimic that same physiology of fasting without having to fast. So there are, you know, three square meals a day for the most part, um, and some snacks in between. You have meals such as some nut-based bars, some chocolate crispy bars. Um, there's a variety of soups, and we also um, have some herbal teas in there, some kale crackers, and whole green olives. So it's a it's a pretty dense meal, especially when you think of um, fasting. And if you're thinking of the common definition, it's like, wow, how, how can I be fasting with this? But just going back to that biological definition, you can definitely um, help to promote that same physiology of fasting. But you have to be very specific about those macronutrients as well as the caloric ranges, which is what Dr. Longo had done. And this is how we have the diet today. Right. And it's very specific. And there is a DIY version in his yeah. book. And then you guys have kind of like a pre-done version. And I have some links about kind of some different intermittent fasting things and links to where we find these things. I'll put them in the show notes um, to make it easier. But this is this is something I've used as well. So let me go now to I don't think we even put this kind of in some of our I didn't even tell you that we were going to talk about this. But I think sometimes in my brain, sometimes we try to mix intermittent fasting with ketosis, and it can be a method to get to ketosis, and we don't need to talk about ketosis exactly, but is there something that you want to say here about how these are kind of different or how they complement? Oh, yeah. Um, so full disclosure, I do have some amount of experience with the ketogenic diet. Um, of course, it's mainly clinical work and utilizing it with um, a pediatric patient that has epilepsy, unfortunately. Um, But it is to say that they are different. Now, with fasting, uh, the real reason why you're perpetuating ketosis is because you don't have nutrients coming in and you're trying to maintain that blood sugar homeostatic level. So in an effort to do that, in an effort to, in essence, curtail the use of glucose, you're going to start to burn more fat. And by way of saturating out certain types of processes, you'll start to see ketone bodies rise. And basically, they're just the more available form of a fat molecule. You can think of it like that. Now, with a ketogenic diet, it's much different. The reason why you're stimulating ketosis is not only that we have a very low amount of carbohydrates and also proteins combined as proteins can convert into carbohydrates. And in essence, you can elevate blood sugar to a point where you won't see ketones but also the amount of fat that you're pushing in. So you're priming the body to not only not have enough carbohydrates to really get certain metabolic processes to occur in an efficient rate to be able to use them, but you're supplementing with such an abundant amount of fat that you're starting to push forward and drive that fat burning process. So it's not necessarily that you're burning your own fat, rather you're burning this fat that you're fueling your body with. Although it can be um, something to be said that Maybe it's also stimulating some amount of fat burning process by way of you already being in a fat burning mode, if you will. Um, It's really because of that low carb, very high fat nature. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, just back to 101, ketosis is really burning fat, right? Essentially like using fat for fuel instead of carbs for fuel. And fasting is not, you know, reducing the complete or partial limitation of food. And so in theory, you're not taking in food for energy. And so then if you're Mm -hmm. fasting for a certain length of time, which would be different for different people, because it's going to matter how much glycogen or basically like stored sugar is essentially hanging out in the liver. Like, so if you like start before you went on a fast, you just ate a bunch of cupcakes, you probably have more glycogen storage. So it would actually take longer to make that shift into fat burning mode. So I just wanted to share that because I think people would want to know like, yeah. oh, how long would you have to fast in order to go into ketosis? Like in theory, to start doing that, you know, burning fat instead of carbs. Well, it depends on how much you have um, yeah, stored. Yeah, it totally depends. Which I mean, is yeah, frustrating because everything um, here depends, <laughs> but that's okay. I know, I know. I mean, hey, you know, something that I learned early on with nutrition is that, and I guess it can be said for everything, right? The more you know, the more you know you don't know, <laughs> and especially in regards to nutrition, because truth be told, it it seems kind of straightforward. It's like, oh, well, we're just eating here, and eating leads to me living, and so therefore, you know, I should probably eat things because I'm going to get the nutrients that I need to fill my body, and you know, these are all good things. However it can get so complex, especially when you start to try to answer these very specific questions and you get really granular about it. You start to realize like, oh, wow, well, I don't even know how this process even works. I just know that we kind of 
say this broad statement and we have a lot of assumptions, but it's so difficult to try to define how and why it works. And it's mainly because foods are complex. I mean, there's many different things involved with foods. It's not just a single carbohydrate that you're eating. So, right. yeah, with that being said, it, it's, uh, it's always fun to say <laughs> that it depends because it really does. It does. So some more rapid fire questions. Um, if you're fasting, is it best to uh, let's say, pretend it's like partial fasting. Like, is it best to kind of cycle um, intake and general energy intake up or down and change it up or keep it the same? Or do we not know that? Honest to goodness, we don't know that yet. However, what I will say is that if you look at more of an ancestral approach to fasting, you know, there were periods of feasting and then periods of fasting. So it's not like, and these are forced onto us, right? So Mm -hmm. we didn't have a choice like, hey, you know, I'm going to fast today. It was Mm -hmm. more like, wow, there's no food around us. And so therefore, I'm going to have to figure this out in a more fasted-like sense. So with that being said, there probably is some logic to not be to not be fasting all the time, in essence, especially when it's more of that type of prolonged, that's periodic fast. So you don't want to be doing that for, you know, several times a month or anything like that. Likely, it really only needs to be cycled on once a month. So, well, yes, the, I would argue that there's a cyclical nature to fasting. Yeah. I mean, the concern is, and this is what maybe someone would say, like just Joe Schmo would say, is that if mm-hmm. you're limiting your uh, intake, you could be slowing down your metabolism. What do you think? Like, how would you how would you answer this? So I feel like metabolism, it's its such a fun topic only because it, it is just that complex and yet simple at the same time. So it's hard to say, truth be told, but if I want to just think of it in terms of, you know, basic physiology, your metabolism is controlled by many different things. So your hormones are one, um, you know, your muscle mass is another, and of course your genetics and um, environmental factors as a whole. Oh, so it is to say... Um, one thing, like let's say that you're fasting, technically, if you're losing weight, when you lose weight, you have less cells, so you have less adipocytes. And yes, those adipocytes, even though you know they make us look a little bit heavier, if you will, they do use energy. And there's a reason why they're there. It's because they're storing that energy. So they had a lot of energy, and now they're there storing it. Um, but they still burn energy. And so if you were to lose some of them, then technically you're losing cells. And if you're losing cells, you lose mitochondria, which are the energy powerhouse of your cell. And so therefore, you're just using less energy as a whole. So technically, in that sense, you you would be if you're losing weight. However, it's not that easy. And it's not that clear. So it's, it's hard to say, because some will argue that, you know, wow, my metabolism is shot up after I started fasting, but maybe they also started working out. And maybe they also have, you know, more lean body mass on them. And we know that muscle mass takes a lot of energy to have to maintain. And so some of those people, they eat a lot of food too to help maintain that musculature. So it's a complex topic, unfortunately. It's hard to say whether or not yes or no. But at least what we can say is that it's possible that something is happening, but there are other things to consider when asking a question about metabolism and really what happens to it, especially in regards to you know fasting or anything else. Right. And I think this is maybe why when some people design protocols, they change things up and they cycle things. Because if you keep things different, then in theory, you're not in this like plateaued place or this plateau. That's kind of like just some, it's applying kind of an old school concept to, you know, this newer, newer thing that we do. Right. I mean, hmm. kind of. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you it's so funny because you said, well, metabolism is influenced by hormones, genetics, etc. Great segue. How does intermittent fasting affect your gene expression? I feel like that's a hard question because I need to preface by like you get genes from your parents, but how they express or how the light turns on in life depends on what's going on in your real life right now, like a lot of other factors. So how does fasting affect how your genes are performing and how they work? So I, I won't necessarily say that it makes your genes perform better or worse or anything like that. But what we can say is that, of course, genes code for certain proteins. And when you're fasting, you have certain proteins that are technically being less active and other proteins that are being more active or other genes that are being expressed. So with that being said, what we do know is that fasting can shift this genetic expression 
in essence, to promote a fasting phenotype or a fasting physiology, basically. And what we can say is that Dr. Longo has helped to categorize what this actually looks like. So this would be those pro-growth and or nutrient sensing pathways I was talking about, which if I want to be more specific, I'm really thinking of things like mTOR or the mechanistic target rapamycin, IGF-1 or insulin-like growth factor 1, and then also PKA or protein kinase A. In essence, with fasting, we are kind of circumventing their activation, and so subsequently we're seeing fasting occur. And all of those are key factors that are turned on by nutrients and, of course, help us to grow. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a quick, um, can you tell us, when we're talking about mTOR and IGF and PKA, um, Mm -hmm. tell us what that is essentially so that way we can bridge the gap here. Yeah, yeah. So basically, you can think of them as these pro-growth proteins. So they're all related to functions that cause our bodies to want to grow, to divide, to proliferate. And those are essential functions, or not our bodies, rather our cells, right? So those are essential functions. We need to be able to conduct cell cycles and grow and cause our bodies to um, differentiate, or at least our tissues to differentiate. And that's compatible with life. If we did not have that, then in essence, we would we would die. Um, however, of course, with fasting, it's a time where we're not growing, which is, in essence, kind of a, an anti-growth phase. And it's really trying to upregulate these other processes that are involved with stress resistance and really a stressor-type response where your body is like, oh, my goodness, I have nothing coming in. I need to preserve myself. And in an effort to preserve myself, I'm going to stop growing right now because, hey, this is not a time to grow. Like, I don't have enough, you know, building blocks to be growing. So I'm going to try to capitalize on what I already have and, of course, do things like the autophagy that I was mentioning a little earlier so that you can try to stay in a stress resistance mode so that you can live another day until, of course, nutrients are readily available again and you can start building again. So that's really what their function is to basically help you grow. Okay. Talk to me about what we know about intermittent fasting affecting hormones, which you and I know is a loaded topic, but it makes people's ears perk up because they're like, oh, what? Hormones? <laughs> so talk about, yeah, talk about hormones. Um, it, yeah, it's a, it is a little bit of a low topic, isn't it? Um, well, what we can say, and I can really only talk mainly about FMD, as the other types of faster, it, it's a little more difficult to delineate. Um, but at least with FMD, what we've seen is that it has been scientifically demonstrated to supply the body with, of course, optimal nutrition without triggering those pro-aging uh, pathways I was mentioning a little earlier, including IGF-1, so insulin-like growth factor 1, which technically is one of the many different types of hormones that we'd be considering um, in relationship to just how fasting works. And so that's one of the ways that IF can, I suppose, or at least periodic fasting can interact with your hormone levels. It basically can shunt them towards an area where you're stimulating counter-regulatory hormones to be able to fast. And so if you had higher levels of these growth hormones in in the sense of like IGF-1 and just pro-growth or pro-growth physiology, then you would not be in a fasting mode. So it just shunts it more towards a fasting physiology. Got it. Okay. I like doing gut health stuff, right? And so some people mm-hmm. kind of say, oh, you can use intermittent fasting to do gut healing stuff. And I'm like, okay, not directly exactly. But let's talk about the physiology of what happens in the gut when you're doing intermittent fasting. So with intermittent fasting and with the gut, what I can say is that there is a lot of information sorry, um, out there right now in relationship to animal studies, but we don't have enough in human studies to actually say what's really happening. What we can say is, you know, we know that diet can, of course, impact our gut microflora, especially in regards to um, fibers and insoluble types of biologically active nutrients. So it is to say, likely something may be occurring. We just don't know exactly what it is nor do we know to what degree and, you know, of course, if it's actually happening. So there's not a lot of information on it yet, but it's promising because I know that we are actively looking at that. So I'm sure more information will be available soon. And a lot of it is in, you know, animal trials right now, but that doesn't really tell us a lot of what's happening, you know, in us. Mm -hmm. 
The biohackers want to know that if they're using intermittent fasting regularly, is there a specific food pattern, aka diet, that seems to be most supportive? In conjunction, for biohacking. Uh, in I'm just, to... I'm just saying, I'm just saying. People, I always, uh, I'm just stereotyping. People that are into intermittent fasting might be those that are more pro into their health. And I always, sometimes I talk to people that are, I call them biohackers, right? And they're kind of into the, like yeah, all yeah. the autophagy stuff, etc. So, um, for someone who's really into things and they are really interested into the health effects of intermittent fasting, they want to be supporting with a complementary eating pattern or diet. Is there one? that seems to work well? You know, honestly, um, if you were trying to, you know, biohack, if you will, then I would argue that probably one of the things that you're going to want to do is a fasting mimicking diet. It's very straightforward and simple to do. Now, if you're thinking of, and of course, that would be in relationship to trying to do a periodic prolonged fast. Now, if you're trying to think of something ancillary, so, you know, you already fast or you already do the FMD and now you want to do something post-FMD, um, usually what we tell um, individuals is, you know, that's up to your medical provider. Whatever diet they, you know, think is best for you is really probably the diet that you need to be on. So we leave it up to them. However, if you don't have one, if you're already pretty healthy and you have just kind of wellness goals in mind, then I would argue that Dr. Longo's longevity diet is honestly one of the healthier diets that I've heard of recently. And in essence, um, it's basically a Mediterranean plant-based pescatarian diet. So we already know the Mediterranean diet is super healthy. There are quite a few clinical trials to show that and its efficacy. And fish, of course, they're dense and healthy fats now. There are arguments against fish. So, hey, you know, if you don't like fish, you don't have to have them. But fish are, you know, we know that they have healthy fats in them. And then, of course, plants. Plants, plants, plants. I mean, probably some of the, the best information that I've ever received was from a single sentence, which is try to eat the rainbow a day um, in plants. And that's actually pretty hard, to be honest with you. Um, but it's super good advice. And it has a lot to do with the fact that we know that the colors of plants have a role with the types of biologically active components within those plants. So it behooves us to diversify the types of plants that we're eating. And so Really, that diet as a whole, the longevity diet, is one of the healthier diets that I've seen out there, especially today um, in the midst of other dietary therapies that are just very extreme in nature. And he's really pulling that. It always goes back to Mediterranean, doesn't it, of some version? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> he's really pulling that because he grew up kind of in the Mediterranean-ish area. I mean, really, kind yeah, of. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like a little biased, although there is some rationale. So um, part of the longevity diet, it really has to do with him looking at um, these areas, we call them blue zones. And in essence, they're these areas where people live to be 100 plus. And he was very fascinated by that. Um, part of the area that he grew up in, in Italy, that just so happens to be one of the blue zones. And so he was trying to figure out, you know, like, what's this common denominator between all these uh, areas. And of course, sleeping patterns, social behaviors, lifestyle in general, you know, fitness level, all of those things play a role. But when you look at diet, and of course, that was his main um, objective is looking at diet, uh, you, he found that they all tend to eat plants, they incorporate some sort of lean protein, maybe fish, and it does tend to be more like this Mediterranean diet lifestyle, although not limited to but, of course, a Mediterranean diet was one of them that was featured within the centenarian areas that he was looking at. Mm -hmm. So there was some rationale there. Mm -hmm, totally. <laughs> Although, of course, he is Italian, so right. it, it probably also has a little bit to do with the fact that, you know, it's that, his home. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, so I know when you're doing the prolonged uh, fasting mimicking diet, so you're getting the benefits of this prolonged fast, you are including some supplements to cover some bases. In general, are there other supplements that support the health effects of intermittent fasting that we know of? Not really. Um, is it just really making sure we have nutrients there? I mean, if, you're, if someone's practicing intermittent fasting, do you think they should have a good multi? Mm -hmm. um, what do you think there? Yeah, so we do have a multivitamin, multimineral, um, and of course, we also have a DHA supplement, an omega-3 fatty acid. And yeah, that's really just to cover the bases of micronutrients. And I would argue that, you know, all that we know shows efficacy during a fast. I've read a few studies where they've shown that if you do introduce some specific types of um, 
dietary supplements that might actually counteract how the fast works. And that does make some sense because most of these dietary supplements, I mean, there's a lot to be said about them, but let's just, you know, assume they all work and they're exactly as described on their label. If they are working exactly as they're described to work, usually that's in relationship to normal physiology. When you're fasting, that is an altered physiology. So if you were to try to introduce them during this new altered physiology, it's very possible that it may actually negate how that physiology is working. And that has a lot more to do with the fact that our bodies naturally have these counter-regulatory systems, so negative feedback loops. And let's say that, you know, maybe you're taking a supplement that's trying to perpetuate some sort of beneficial property. Maybe that's already being perpetuated when you're fasting. So maybe when you introduce it when you're fasting, it's actually kind of negating your body's natural ability to perpetuate that type of function. It's not very well documented at this point. There are only a few um, human studies right now, but it is to say it's just something to use with caution that, hey, we don't know enough about it. And you know, if you just wanted to try to, you know, use the most readily available knowledge, it is to say that you'd want to use any of those things with discretion. What were the supplements that were uh, that where it was negating the effects of it? Do you remember? I don't have them specifically, but I know they were antioxidants. Oh, okay, interesting. Thanks. That's helpful. Yeah. Uh, kind of fascinating. All right, cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's say you pick someone's interest today, and they're kind of interested in just dabbling and sticking their toe in with intermittent fasting because they were like, uh, they said, I too also like to eat and did not want to fast. But um, it sounds kind of interesting. Maybe I should play around with this. And I will say that there's <laughs> that's a wide open uh, ball game too. How would you suggest that mm-hmm. someone get started if they're interested in giving it a try? You know, it's I guess it depends on what kind of fast you want to do, but if you wanted to do, let's say, something like um, the fasting mimicking diet, uh, we do have a website, uh, and it's, it's actually called Prolon FMD. Depending on if you're a clinician or not, we do have an alternate clinician site, and that would show you everything that you need to know about um, the fasting mimicking diet. And, of course, you can always call in. We'd be more than happy to help you. So, Victoria, did we cover some of the big ones? Did I miss anything? Is there anything I should add? No, I I think you really did cover all the big ones. I mean, we got through a lot, especially honing in on how fasting works and different types of fasting strategies and benefits associated with fasting. Right. We got the, we we definitely hit the intermittent fasting 101. Victoria, thanks so much for joining (laughs) us and for sharing your knowledge. It's intimate. You know, you work on this every day. So um, hearing it from you is a little different than hearing it from someone who's kind of intermittently working on fasting. Ha ha. Uh, pun intended, I guess. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining good. us. And uh, Victoria is visiting my home state for our conference this fall. I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you. I look forward to being over there in South Dakota. Shoot, I have never been there before, so it should be fun. But thank you so much, Krista, for inviting me to talk. I did. It, this was super fun, and I hope to see you there. Yeah, thanks for coming on. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 